Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry out there, and this is Stuff You Should Know. (laughs) That was a pretty good Thurman impression, don't you think? Hey, not bad. I uh, am a little bit proud of myself because the theremin, it turns out, is very, very tough to play, and it's even tougher to imitate. So <laughs> that was something of an accomplishment for me. Have you ever tried to play one? No, I haven't. I have not, no. It's weird that you had to think about that. <laughs> I Well, I mean, <laughs> I I was just trying to think, like, I think there's one in the How Stuff Works office somewhere. Or the oh, really? Stuff Podcast office. I, I want to say that there is. Well, I'm there, man. Let's go get it. Okay, so look around. We'll wait. We'll wait. We won't edit out <laughs> you going and wandering around and looking for it. I'll just talk to the people that keep them busy. Uh, that's weird. I mean, I'm obviously not going to go look for it, but I had no idea there was one here. I think so. I could be making that up, but doesn't it seem like the kind of thing that would be there? Oh, Totally. So, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about theremins. And if you still don't know what we're talking about, let us describe this. We should play a clip, too. We'll be able to do that, right? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Um, Well, here you go. We'll play a clip of something that we'll figure out what it is later. Ready? Yeah. So, there's whatever we selected post-production to put in to, to demonstrate theremins. But that, that eerie, high-pitched kind of wailing sound, that's a theremin. And the theremin was the world's first electronic musical instrument. And it was created by accident, as we'll see. But um, it uses electromagnetism, actually electromagnetic interference, to produce a changing-pitched sound, changing in pitch and changing in volume. And you can create this this sound, this music, I guess you would call it, without any kind of mechanical uh, energy whatsoever. You're just moving your, your body or your hands in and out of the electromagnetic field around the theremin, and that's what produces the sound. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and as we will also see, it's, uh, it's key that you use a hand mm-hmm. uh, because your body, it has to be something that conducts electricity. Like you could... Technically, you could use metal or something like that, but you wouldn't have the nuance that you're able to achieve by, you know, very sort of micro movements in your hand and your fingers. Right. Uh, and when you're playing it, it sort of looks like almost like you're conducting an orchestra the way you hold your hand. It's very evocative of uh, conducting, I think. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because um, Theremin, who is actually named Terman, um, he he said that it was like creating music out of thin air just like a conductor does. So that was very astute of you, Charles. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned Terman. This guy, uh, his his Russian name, I guess, was uh, Lev Sergeyevich Terman, T-E-R-M-E-N. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess Leon Theremin sounds a little more Western. Is, did he, he change must, it? I, I don't know. It, you know, here in America, we just change it for you, you know? Right. <laughs> you, you come through Ellis Island, you get basically a whole new name that Americans can pronounce more easily. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. That's a good point. Uh, so when Lev was in his early 20s, uh, in the sort of early 1900s and 1919-ish, 
He um, was working at the Physical Technical Institute in St. Petersburg, Russia, mm-hmm. and he was working. And as you'll see, he he you know for majority of his career worked for the the Russian state, mm-hmm. but he was working on an invention that was supposed to measure the density of gas in a chamber. And essentially, he was trying to uh, develop like a land-based sonar device that used electromagnetism to detect objects that came within a certain area. And he was like, hey, I'm a pretty young, hip, creative guy. I wonder if I added sound to this thing uh, and not intending to create anything musical, but just let me add sound to it uh, to indicate that this thing is even on. And he did it. And bada bing, bada boom, Bon Jovi, he was like, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, because, I mean, like, it, it would make sense that you want to add sound to it because if you're detecting something coming within proximity, it's kind of like a metal detector. As you get closer and closer to the metal, that sound that it makes um, increases. It's basically the exact same thing, except you're not detecting metal. You're detecting electromagnetic interference, basically, with the theremin. But because he was a young, hip guy, like you said, and also a classically trained cellist, um, he said, I think that I could turn this into a musical instrument. And he did pretty quickly. He um, fiddled with it a little bit, maybe uh, did a little, put another doohickey or two on there. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he had, like I said at the beginning, the world's first electronic musical instrument. Like if you're into dance music or electronica <laughs> or anything like that, you owe a great debt of gratitude to, to Lev Terman. Sure. Uh, should we um, use some of these things that you found, some of these descriptors? Yeah, so this this initially had like two or three, and I just started adding to them. One of my favorite things to do is to go around collecting people's hapless descriptions of, of a, <laughs> what a theremin sounds like, because nobody <laughs> nails it, but all, all of them come close, and they're hilarious in their attempts. Yeah, so uh, here's one, a cross between a violin and a soprano voice. Uh, that's That's not bad. I think that was the original one. Yeah, I mean, you can get, I mean, especially when you get some vibrato going, mm-hmm. you can see how one might liken it to a voice. Oh, yeah. It doesn't sound like a voice to me, but I get the I get the, the comp. Um, okay, how about this one? A purified and magnified saxophone. Nah. I think if there was ever a complete failure in describing uh, um, a theremin sound, it's that one. Yeah, it sounds like a saxophone, like a, a cheap keyboard uh, the saxophone button on a cheap keyboard sounds like a saxophone. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's what they which meant. Is not I'm very. Just totally missing their point. Uh, let me see. The howling of a haunted wind. That's pretty good. I love that one. This one I think comes from Thurman himself. A cello lost in a dense fog and crying because it does not know how to get home. <laughs> Poor cello, just walking uh-huh. around in the dark by himself. Ah, <laughs> uh, how do I get home? <laughs> uh, let me see here. Uh, a cross between an amplified child slide whistle, so uh, it doesn't say and what. That was a that was a mistake. I put or instead uh, okay. of and. That's oh. all one. Okay, That's a one slide whistle <laughs> and a human voice and the squawks that emanated from early radio speakers. That, <laughs> that one's pretty. That one's pretty good because it's uh, the the one of the key components of a theremin is that slide because it is um, as you will see and if you listen to theremin music. It's all about that slide. It's not they're not punctuated with staccato notes. No, and as a matter of fact, I was watching um a tutorial by currently the world's foremost thereminist. Uh, I believe her name is Carolina Eck. Yeah. E Y C K. She's German. 
um, so however you would pronounce that in the German. Um, and she makes finger motions to cut off the last motion to to create a space in between notes oh, okay. to separate notes rather than she uses the technical um, jargon for what she's talking about. And I'm not quite familiar with it, but another way to put it is she's cutting spaces into the notes. So she's not sliding it around like a trombone. <laughs> no, or a slide whistle that's yeah. lost in the dark. <laughs> you do a pretty good slide whistle. Do your slide whistle. <laughs> I had one of those when I was a kid. I thought it was the best thing ever. I never even did. I'm self-taught. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. I know what you're getting for Christmas. Oh, nice. Remember that time you got me an empty can of Billy beer? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Man, that yeah, was 100 that was years ago. Or No, it wasn't Billy beer. I'm sorry. It was just plain generic beer. The oh, white right. white can with just the black, like, Helvetica font that just says beer. Yeah, my friend Eddie's favorite beer of all time. Has he actually drank it? Yeah, when we went to uh, – there were like four of us that went to L.A. for spring break in college mm-hmm. and stayed with my brother. And we went to the store and they had the generic beer and Eddie <laughs> is a beer guy and he just flipped. He bought like three cases of it. <laughs> wow. For 50, 50 cents. Yeah, exactly. Per, yeah. <laughs> so um, Theremin has got this instrument going. He's pretty mm-hmm. proud of it. Word mm-hmm. gets around uh, Mother Russia. And word gets to Lenin, who at the time was chairman of Russia's uh, sort of newly, or I guess installed as one word for it, uh, the Bolshevik (laughs) government. And he flipped over it. Lenin was a theremin nut. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to send you on tour, comrade. And uh, this thing is going to want people to champion electricity as a whole just by these demonstrations. Right. Just so that they can possibly get a theremin themselves, they're going to install electricity in their house. That's my plan. Yeah. I'm Lennon. Forget reading lights or warmth. <laughs> right. It's the theremin that they'll want. So he, he tours Russia for a while, basically promoting, you know, electricity, uh, electronic music, Soviet know-how, that kind of stuff. And um, his tour is so successful that they send him on to Western Europe. And he toured Western Europe with what were known as his um, ether concerts, ether wave <laughs> concerts, not ether concerts. Those were totally different. Yeah. Um, and the the one of the less known things about Lev Terman is that while he was touring Europe, just wowing crowds, he was also spying for the Soviet state, which he did for a while, actually. Yeah, I know this. I say this a lot, but this this has got the makings of a pretty good movie too. <laughs> Don't you think? Right. Sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure. You'd have to really be a master to 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 pull out the um, the the humanity and the compassion in the viewer for this guy because he he's morally ambiguous in a lot of places. I think, but in the end, you know, just the kind of treatment he got, I think, kind of makes him a sad sack case. That the you old gulag feel, treatment feel bad for. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get to that. But so. He's touring around. He, uh, like you said, is a spy for the Soviet regime. And because of this tour, he's being allowed, he's getting all this access Mm -hmm. to places where he can be a pretty good spy, actually. Um, Patent offenses and um, like industrial uh, complexes and stuff like that. So he's getting access and doing a pretty good job spying for, uh, for the Soviet regime. 
And he ended up taking up residence in the United States. I, I didn't see whether that was a, part of the Soviet plan or his own plan. I'm not sure. But he, he found himself quite at home in, in New York when he, he showed up in the U.S. and started becoming kind of a, a, the toast of the town. Um, I read that Albert Einstein kept a, uh, a lab at um, Terman's apartment in New York on 54th Street. When he visited him, he would just do some work while he was there. Um, he, he became pretty well-known, especially among, like, avant-garde musicians and composers. Um, he was just kind of a known as, like, a cool guy. Um, he had a very scandalous marriage in that he married an African-American uh, prima ballerina whose name is Lavinia Williams. Um, and I think he lived in the United States for a good Decade. He showed up in 1928, and he lived there until 1938, I believe. And along the way, because he became such a toast of the town, and his his theremin, um, which had been known for a while as his theremin vox, yeah, which is theremin's voice, finally got shortened to theremin. And RCA said, "You know what? I think these things are going to be a hit. We're going to we're going to buy the rights from you, or at least um, lease the rights from you, and start producing our own." Yeah, because he obviously was wise enough to get a patent in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1928. Um, that was his second wife, by the way. I didn't, I couldn't get a whole lot about his first wife, mm-hmm. uh, other than it was clearly in Russia, because her name was Ekaterina Pavlovna. Okay, that's a pretty Russian name. <laughs> and he was married three times. He had a couple of daughters, mm-hmm. uh, I think, with his third wife. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about his kids later. But he uh, he gets his patent. RCA, uh, like you said, jumps on board the theremin bandwagon and manufactures a uh, a version of the theremin, like an at home theremin, for 175 bucks, which is a really expensive musical instrument. That's 2,700 yeah. bucks today, especially during the depression. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I, I don't know who they thought they were going to sell them to. RCA they thought made they were going to sell them to everybody. <laughs> Yeah, RCA made it sound like they they were onto something really really big, but it was such a expensive price point. It was such a niche product. Um, I think only, I mean they sold the first uh, run that they built, but only to like rich people who wanted to like throw parties and wow people with their theremin, basically. I guess one of the other big problems with it is that they marketed it like there's no strings, there's no frets, there's no. You know, there's nothing. It's that was just their slogan. Thin, no thin strings air. attached. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> um, they said that anybody can learn to play this. Make music with the wave of a hand. Um, and the problem is the theremin is really, really hard to learn because it doesn't have things like frets or strings or um, chord progressions or anything like that. Um, and there's no other instrument like it on the planet. So um, it's very difficult to learn. And I think RCA made a first production run of like 400 units, and they managed to sell 380 of them, some of which are still in existence today. And I was looking them up. Apparently, um, if you can find one that's just in terrible shape, you could still probably get 3500 bucks for it. And oh, one really? that's in really good condition, mint condition, would be about thirteen grand, huh. because they're such collector's items, but also because of the original... Um, the um, electronics inside. Yeah, the circuitry. Yeah, that that it makes a sound that's really difficult to replicate because we have such an embarrassment of riches with advancement in, in electronics today that it's hard to make something sound old-timey and original. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Everything sounds so rich and, and advanced. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why people will pay thirteen grand for a, an original RCA theremin. I bet Jack White has one. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet he does too. So um, when he was in the United States, uh, living there, doing some spying and doing some theremin playing, like he would put on big, big concerts. He put on a full theremin orchestra, which is to say I think there were like six of them. Um, at Carnegie Hall. So, like, these were big, big events. Right. Um, and like you said, he got married to a second wife there and was leading this double life, really. Like, no one knew what was going on, uh, obviously, as a spy. And he got a little more and more nervous as World War II approaches that he might get ratted out. He's he's really enjoying this life in America. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't want to I don't want to do this. Uh, the FBI's got a file on me. He didn't say that because he didn't know that. But the, the ghost of Leon Theremin said that later on. <laughs> right. And he was getting uh, pretty deep into debt. And so in 1938, he left the U.S. Uh, after 10 years there, didn't even tell his wife he was leaving, his second wife, mm-hmm. and stayed gone until the early 90s. Yeah, and part of that was not by his own decision. Like, he stayed gone in part because— oh, sure. As Stalin came into power, he was not very—he didn't fancy the old regime, and uh, Theremin was definitely associated with that old regime. He was a favorite of Lenin's. Um, So he was thrown into the gulag as the the USSR really started to gain strength and power. Um, And apparently, as World War II started to approach, the Soviets realized that they'd actually— thrown a lot of valuable scientists in, in their minds into gulag. So they went and got them out, including uh, Lev Terman, and put them in a, uh, a different kind of gulag called the Sharashka. Yeah, I got it. Sharashka, <laughs> which is basically like a prison for scientists. It's like science it's like, camp that you can't leave. Exactly. And you can't see your family or friends or connect with the outside world. But you can spend all of your time thinking about ways to come up with new devices that the Soviet state can use. And that is actually where Lev Theremin uh, came up with his other great invention that he's known for, which is called the thing or the great seal bug. Yeah, I think uh, that's a pretty good time to take a break. Okay. And we'll come back right after this. Okay, Chuck, so frankly, you really left everybody hanging with that last thing. So let's talk about the thing or the great seal bug, okay? Uh, yeah, boy, all these years in, I got to teach you about a cliffhanger. Yeah, I like, to, I like to plot along at the most boring pace and stop at the most boring, predictable times. Uh, so before the thing, he invented something called a Buran, B-U-R-A-N, and that was a list, another listening device mm-hmm. um, that sort of functioned as a, a laser microphone that you would use today where you would point it at a, at a piece of glass like someone's, you know, behind that glass stalking, and it would sense the vibrations in the glass. Oh, that's so, – wow. He invented that? Yeah, he invented the Buran. I've heard about that thing. Uh, but that was um, nothing sort of as far as impact goes compared to the great seal bug mm-hmm. or the thing like you mentioned. And this was really pretty extraordinary that this actually worked. Um, not that his invention worked, but that the, the scam worked. Um, so what he did was he put a passive bug 
inside a wood carving of the the seal, the Great Seal of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, they presented it to uh, Avril Her- Harriman, who was the American ambassador to Moscow, and he hung it on his wall and it allowed himself to get spied on for years. So, so in Harriman's defense. Um, he didn't it was know. like you said. It was like you said. A, a, a he was a very trusting sort, which made him a terrible choice for the ambassador, the American ambassador to Moscow. But it was a passive bug. It didn't use electricity, so there was no possible way for anybody to sweep for it. Right. So I'm sure they swept this great seal. Oh yeah. You know, eight ways from Sunday, and turned nothing up. And they're like, all right, put it up. Um, and the the reason it was passive is because it didn't use electricity, and it was activated by microwaves. The microwaves would turn an antenna on. Um, and you could be a few doors down and just beam like a, a microwave beam toward this thing and it would activate the antenna. And then the place that it was put in the eagle's beak created kind of like an ear, a wooden ear that amplified the sound in the room and the antenna would pick it up and transmit it automatically. Seven years they were able to spy <laughs> on these conversations and it was – it could have gone on forever but it was uh, it was discovered by accident. There was a British radio operator mm-hmm. who picked up the signal. And it's like, hey, <laughs> something's going on here. And I guess they eventually, you know, probably just tore that room inside out until they found it. Would be my guess. Right. That radio operator is like, is that is that Avril Harriman talking? <laughs> I know that voice. The great, the best part of that story is that they got the Soviet equivalent of the Boy Scouts, the Young Pioneers. Yeah to present the plaque. And I was raised as a child of the Cold War, so I strongly suspect the young pioneers were in on it. They knew full well what they were doing. Of course. Were communists. Yeah, they were in on it. <laughs> it was a young uh, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> probably. Probably, Chuck. You never know. Uh, so uh, Theremin was, um, he kind of disappeared from public view because of the the uh, gulag experience and being in science prison camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, 1967, a New York Times critic named Harold Schoenberg um, found him quite by accident at the Moscow Conservatory uh, where he was working at the time. He was writing a story uh, or wrote a story that basically kind of outed him and said, hey, here's Leon Theremin. He's right here in the Soviet Union. Yeah, and he was probably like, finally, I've been waiting for you guys to dig me up. But the the Soviet state said, you know what, this is not a good thing. We can't have this guy talking to the press and becoming a cause celeb again. He's just done too much dirt. He's been in a gulag before. He bugged the ambassador like this. He just knows too much. We don't want him people paying attention to him. So they ruined him. They ruined his career. They had him fired from the conservatory. They um, trashed all of the inventions he was working on, and he ended up spending the next couple decades living um, in poverty in a in a group home, in a room in a group home, um, basically because of that New York Times critic finding him and writing that article again, which is sad on the one hand, but at the other hand, on the other hand, it, it um, brought him back from any sort of obscurity he'd kind of been pounded into. Yeah, so this lasts until about the 80s when the Soviet Union opens up just a bit. And he leaves and goes to Europe. He goes to the U.S., like we said at the beginning, in 1991. And uh, then was able to sort of reap a little bit of his reward as as a, you know, pioneer in electronic music or or music period. Um, There's a documentary called Theremin, colon, an electronic odyssey from the early 90s that is not great. 
But uh, <laughs> it does feature him in the end, which is which is pretty cool. Like the last third of it has actual interviews with Leon Theremin and him playing it and stuff like that. Sure. He, I mean, he must have known that he needed to shore up his legacy while he could because, you know, he visited the U.S. in 1991 and he was dead two years later back in Russia. Um and he was still working on stuff to to the end. He was working on a dance floor that was made up of um, his turpistone, which was another invention of his, which was uh, like a theremin. But rather than using your hands, you used your whole body and you danced. Well, he, he was making an entire dance floor out of these. <laughs> you could have a bunch of people dancing, making the worst possible sounds you can imagine all at the same time. And he was in his um, 90s. <laughs> yeah, he was like 90, 93 seven when he died. So yeah, he was working on this in his 90s. So he was a hip cat until the end. <laughs> so uh, while he was gone, something happened in the U.S. in the 1940s and 50s. Um, the theremin kind of blew up uh, and blew up as far as a theremin goes. It wasn't like <laughs> it became a staple in, in music or a staple in, in pop music. But it was used largely at first in movies, uh, science fiction, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound, most notably, maybe uh-huh. um, the Lost Weekend, and yeah. it, unless it was science fiction, it sort of came to be a, a, a signal for psychological distress. Like if somebody was under the influence of drugs, or if that was somebody like locked away in a in a what they would have called an insane asylum back then, you might right. hear a theremin kind of say, "By the way, this character is off their rocker." You're right. If you if your drug trip sound, feels to you like a theremin sounds, you're on a bad trip, buddy. You think? <laughs> sure. All right. But you can you could trace the um, kind of the breakout popularity, or at least the introduction to the general public of the theremin, to basically two people back in the 40s and 50s, um, Miklos Rosha, who was the guy who scored the Lost Weekend in Spellbound, and Samuel Hoffman who was a thereminist and composer who worked with some other kind of more popular composers, Les Baxter and Harry Revel, to make some really great music um, in a couple of new new types of music, lounge and exotica. Um, That's right up your alley. I listened to uh, Music Out of the Moon today like eight times. I listened to Perfume Set to Music. How is it? It's okay. Not as much theremin, theremin as uh, I wanted. I wanted more theremin. Well, a little theremin goes a long way for sure. Well, yeah, that's true. But there were parts in music out of the moon where you have to like really listen because it, it just it, it um, merges so well, it harmonizes so well with the other stuff. Like maybe vocalists harmonizing the theremin will harmonize with it, which is now that I know about theremins, that is incredibly masterful to be able to harmonize with a human voice using a theremin. Yeah, totally. Um, but those two guys definitely kind of introduced that to the to the public and one member of the public that got introduced to the theremin who was really responsible for breaking it out was a guy named Robert Moog. Moog. You might recognize, whatever, (laughs) you might recognize from his um, synthesizer that he was the guy who invented the synthesizer. Well, apparently Robert Moog, uh, his first and last love, I saw someone say, was the theremin. Yeah, he got together with his dad and he built theremin kits to sell to people. Um, yep. It's kind of one of the cool thing about theremin. Uh, you can buy one ready to go, but uh, all along since the beginning and, and up to this very day, you can buy a kit to kind of build it yourself because they're very, uh, they very much cater to uh, circuitry and electronic uh, wonks. 
who love to get in there yeah. with their soldering iron and mess around. So kits were very popular from the beginning, and that's kind of how Mo got its start as a company. Yeah, by selling these theremin kits. Um, and I think it was uh, 1954 when he started selling them. And by the 60s, they were, like, really ready to be used. They were, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of room in psychedelic music for the theremin. Um, and so it pops up on some Rolling Stones albums, apparently um, – uh, uh, Brian Jones, right? Yeah, Brian Jones played the theremin for a couple of albums. Um, it's on Whole Lot of Love, sure. where R- Robert Plant has his climax. Um, <laughs> and then, don't tell me that's meant to represent anything else but that. Everybody knows that. Yeah, I've known sure. that since fourth grade. Could you okay. imagine if, like, if you were, you know, having sex with Robert Plant in the 1970s, and he's, <laughs> and that's literally what he started doing. <laughs> Jimmy Page just comes out of the closet playing the theremin along the company. Oh him. my lord, that'd be great. Um, there's a couple of places where you'd think it pops up, but you would be wrong, Chuck. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, well, it's not controversial. The Beach Boys song "Good Vibrations" uh, is probably the most popular song ever to really heavily feature very distinctly what you think is a theremin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually something called an electrotheremin. Uh, Brian Wilson calls it a theremin. Everyone sort of calls it a theremin. But it's a trombonist named Paul Tanner invented it, um, basically a very simplified theremin that you could play with knobs mm-hmm. uh, to make it easier to hit the right tones. That, that to me, makes it not, not a theremin. Yeah, it's an electrotheremin. So um, there's not a theremin on good vibrations, as a lot of people think. <clears throat> it's also not a theremin you're hearing in the Star Trek theme. A lot of people apparently think that it shows up in that oh, Star really? Trek theme. And that, it turns out, is soprano Luli Jean Norman hitting all those incredible notes. I don't even, I don't think I've ever heard that theme. Whoa. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Beaker, apparently, who just it. made a cameo in that <laughs> in that version. Meep. Yep. Um, so those are two places the theremin doesn't show up. Uh, it does show up elsewhere in movies like Ed Wood and Mars Attacks, oh, both, course. I think, Tim Burton movies, right? Yeah, I bet he's all over the theremin. Hellboy. Um, it was also in First Man, which I have still not seen, but I guess I there's either. a scene where Neil Armstrong throws his um, his – uh, young dead daughter's bracelet into a crater in the moon and they use theremin, which just seems like a very bold choice for a, a recent movie to me. I'm surprised you haven't seen that. I'm a little surprised too. You're, a little, you're a little ashamed man. as well. I'm surprised I haven't seen it because I have a crush on uh, Gosling. Who doesn't, dude? I know. Man, Lars and the Real Girl is just one of the best so movies ever made. Yeah, also starring a uh, friend of uh, Stuff You Should Know, Paul Schneider. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. right. That's great. <laughs> so uh, a, a bunch of, you know, pop music really latched onto it in, uh, in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, a group called the Silver Apples used one. Uh, yep. One of my favorite uh, records from the 90s is a band called Mercury Rev. Uh, mm-hmm. And their album Deserter Songs heavily features the theremin in a couple of their songs. There's a Sepultura song that has a theremin. And it's played by um, Jason Newstead, who was the basis of Metallica at the time. There's a trivia answer for you. <laughs> Seriously. He's like, stand there's back. Also, you can't crowd the theremin. It changes the pitch. <laughs> there's also uh, – that was your Jason Newstead impression? <laughs> sure. That guy's, he just looks angry, doesn't he? That's Hetfield you're thinking of. No, Newstead always had that frown. 
Oh, really? Well, all of them did, really. <laughs> they were metal, don't you know? Oh, that's true. Um, and then there was a band called Lothar and the Hand People. And Lothar was the name of the theremin who the band considered the lead singer. And the Hand People were the people playing Lothar, the theremin. Yeah. I, that annoyed me so much I didn't even look it up to listen. Oh, really? I think it's awesome, man. Really? That's just so 60s to me. I mm. love it. I think it's 2000s trying to be 60s. <laughs> No, but they're from the 60s. Oh, they are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They're well, legit. They're I'll, legit. Uh, I'll, I'll look into it then. I that see what you things. mean. Have you seen, uh, what what was the name of that band that um, they just beat up like appliances? I think they're Swedish <laughs> and they, they made the rounds. They were like kind of viral like several years back. I have no idea. They did like a total Eclipse of the Heart cover, but beating up an oven and a dishwasher. <laughs> oh, my God. You'd actually like them. They're pretty, pretty great. And one guy, he's like so scrawny that he can't keep his pants up, so his pants keep falling down <laughs> every time he hits the stove with the sledgehammer. It's, yeah, like it's every time chain. he hits the stove with his belt. <laughs> yeah, basically. Put the belt on. That guy needs a belt more. Than, he, I don't even think a belt could service him any longer. I think he needs like an <laughs> extension cord length. He's got to tie it as tight as he possibly can. He's thin. Uh, and you just unknowingly made another music reference. Well, uh, what? Uh, the great, great band Silver Jews mm-hmm. from the late, great Dave Berman. He has a line in one of their great songs. Uh, hold, <laughs> he has a great. Holding up your trousers with extension cords. Well, that's funny. I wonder if he's, when are they from, the 90s? Uh, 2000s and also featuring friend of the show, Bob Nastanovich. Yeah, no, I knew that. It's basically pavement, isn't it? No, it was Dave Berman, but Malcolmus was on the the one great, great. I mean, they're all good albums, but <laughs> so great. American Water is one of the best albums of the, that decade. I wonder if he was making a Syphysis reference because that's what I was making reference to. There's, I think Nelson Muntz has a he uses an extension cord for a belt. Oh, really? <laughs> Maybe kid. so. Yeah, he's neglected. I knew this was going to take us down some musical side roads. Sure. And I knew you were going to mention Robert Plant climaxing because you say that like every other week. I can't, I can't stop talking about it. <laughs> Should we take another break? I think so. And then we're going to come back and explain how a theremin works and then how to play it. Booyah. How's that for a cliffhanger? I'm hanging. Burning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should Okay, Chuck, so a theremin works through um, electronic magic, basically. I think we should just leave it at that. We could. No, we can't. I really went to a lot of trouble to try to figure out how these things worked in the most simplistic terms possible. And that's really saying something because the people who write about how theremins work are the people who build theremins, which means they're the people who understand things like amplitude and currents and electromagnetic interference and all that stuff. Yeah. But basically, you've got two different um, circuits. You've got a pitch circuit and a volume circuit. And if you've ever seen a theremin, it's basically like a box. And on if you're standing at the box getting ready to play it, on your right, the player's right, is it a single antenna going up vertically that looks like one of a pair of rabbit ears that you would use on an old-timey TV uh, antenna. Look it up, kids. And then on the other side, the left, there's like a round metal 
horizontally oriented antenna that comes out the other side of the box. The one on the left, the round one, that's for adjusting volume. The one on the right, the vertical rod, is for um, adjusting the pitch. Yeah, it's it's sort of volume slash attack. And, and attack is one of those words that unless you're – uh, sort of into playing music, you don't know what it means, but you'll see it pop up on various instruments labeled attack. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's sort of, it's called the musical envelope, the four stages of sound. Uh, and it starts with attack. That's the sort of the beginning of the sound, like right when you strike a piano key or right uh-huh. when you pluck a guitar string. Uh, and then it goes from attack to decay to sustain to release. And the volume and attack it's not quite the same thing, but uh, as far as what we need to know about the theremin, that right – I'm sorry, the horizontal one controls volume and attack. Okay. And then the one on the right, the, the upright one, it controls pitch. And the way that it produces pitch is it's got two different oscillators in there. And an oscillator is just something that produces alternating current electricity in waveform, right? It produces waves. And one of those uh, oscillators produces one at a static frequency. It's always the same frequency no matter what. The other one adjusts. And so when you get your hand, oh, we left out a really important thing. The The way this whole thing works is because you, live human person, are holding an electric charge right now. We talked and about so. That. Oh, we did. Okay. So that's called your capitance. Yeah. And when your capitance uh, your electric charge, whatever that may be, and it's going to be different for each person. So I think kind of the implication, Chuck, is that every different person who walks up to a particular uh, theremin is going to produce a different sound. Doesn't that seem right? Oh, I don't know. I never really thought I, about that. I would think so because I wouldn't think we're all walking around with the same capitance, although I could be wrong. But regardless, just if that's wrong, totally disregard what I just said. <laughs> the The point is, is that um, when you're... Your electrical charge presented in the form of your hand interferes with the um, the uh, the oscillating current that's being created and generated and run through this antenna. Um, it changes that oscillating frequency. And so these two things subtract or add together their frequencies to produce this sound that raises or lowers in pitch depending on how close you are. The closer you get, the higher the pitch, the further away um, the the lower the pitch, uh, and that's basically how it works. The same thing basically with your with your left hand with the volume or attack. It that's it. You're just basically interfering with the electric electromagnetic fields produced and carried through these antennas using your own electrical charge. That's how they work. Yeah, and it's um, if you watch the documentary, there's one um, scientist that uh, attaches it to a waveform visualizer. To uh-huh. sort of explain it a little better, and he um, not better than we did, but just more in more detail. And <laughs> you can say it. No, no, no. Uh, and he uh, he was just said it's it's remarkable that that Leon Theremin or Terman invented this thing without the use of one of those. Like he was going completely mm-hmm. by ear. And yeah. I think if had it not been for his training as a cellist, uh, it, it may not have ever even been anything because. You have to have a really – and this sort of segues into actually playing the thing. Right. You have to have a really, really good ear for pitch to play a theremin because, like you said earlier, there are no markers like frets to look at to know where to go to hit a, a G. It's got a yeah. four and a half – I saw a four and a half octave range and also saw five and a half. But you got to know in the, the air surrounding you in space where exactly to put your hand 
to get mm-hmm. the tone that you want. And if it's off a little bit, it's not going to sound right. So the, the learning curve is long. It's a tough yeah, instrument to, to really get good at. Extremely so. Yeah, because, I mean, if you if you know how to play a guitar, you can walk up to a guitar and be like, oh, here's the frets or whatever. I can put my fingers here or here, and I'm going to make this sound with the theremin. It's, it's literally different places in the air. Um, and so, yeah, you do have to have a good ear. One of the other things you have to have that's essential to playing the theremin is um, a, uh, a steady hand. Yeah. <laughs> or I guess not necessarily, but it definitely helps because— um, if you see somebody kind of moving around like they're just totally whacked out or whatever uh, playing a theremin, well, the sounds they're making <laughs> is not what it's supposed to sound like. A, a theremin is played very delicately. There's yeah. a, a very famous um, thereminist named Clara Rockmore who said, you play with you play a theremin with butterfly wings. Yeah. And she was basically saying, like, your fingers are supposed to be delicate and controlled like a butterfly wings. And so if you watch people playing theremin, they're, they're just, like, they're standing totally straight and still. It's just their hands and their wrists, basically, that are moving and making these really delicate motions through the air that is producing all of these different sounds. Yeah, and the reason you have to stand still, obviously, is because any movement of your body is going to affect the sound. Uh, that's why I made the Jason Newstead joke in that documentary. There's an old, I don't know who she was. God, it might have been Clara Rockmore, maybe. It probably was Clara Rockmore uh, or R- Lucy Bigelow Rosen. Maybe, but she was like back off uh, in her accent and she was like, I'm not, you know, I'm trying to be nice about it, but you can't, you you can't come any closer. And I tell the first violinist in an orchestra the same thing. Like you have to have space around the instrument itself or else it's going to affect the sound. Right. Hey, you know who else uh, played the theremin? Who's a theremin master? Mm, who? My friend Toby. <laughs> really? Yes. So that fits. He, Toby's he a cool guy. From- he is very cool. He was from Dallas, and the Polyphonic Spree was from Dallas. And ah, apparently, yeah, like, right. half of Dallas was members of the Polyphonic yeah. <laughs> Spree, except for poor Toby. And so he went to the dude from Tripping Daisies. I can't remember his name, but the leader of the Polyphonic Spree uh, said, yeah, you know, I want to join. What, 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 uh, what instrument do you need? And the guy was like, I don't know, why don't you go learn to play theremin and come back? And so Toby went and taught himself theremin and came back and joined the Polyphonic Spree. That's right. I think it's Tim something or other. Yeah, I, I was into them for those first two albums quite a bit. Oh, man, they were so great. What what great music. Because it was so earnest, too, you know? Like, yeah, they weren't being good. ironic. No. It was just good. Not but like that Edward um, Sharp guy and that band of who's, hippies. Who's he? <laughs> Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, you know? It was the same kind of deal. Like, hey, let's get 40 people in a band and uh, not have one bar of soap between us. Nope, never heard of them. <laughs> you know, the they had one big hit that you would know. Uh, what, what? Oh, that, uh, home, won't you come home? Home is where I really want to be. It was a huge. No idea. I mean, I wasn't into him and it was a huge, huge hit, so. Was that Judy Garland doing that song? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) So, yeah, so Toby, Toby is the, the, the greatest theremin player I've ever met. That's awesome. Uh, so, you know, you play, like we said, with that, um, you know, a lot of times, like I said, it looks like you're holding a little, uh, whatever you call it, the conductors. I want to do a show on conducting, by the way, just to learn what that thing is, the little stick. Okay, the stick. But it looks like you're sort of holding that because a lot of theremin players tend to touch their thumb and their forefinger together. And you're, you know, you're sort of wiggling your fingers for vibrato and you can learn basic theremin and make the sounds that sound good. 
And then there's like next level thereminning, uh, where you really get involved with your fingers and very subtle movements to create different sounds. Yeah. So it, it is like a, a really difficult thing to do and to learn to play in no small part because there aren't frets or anything like that, um, but also because of the, the just precision uh, movement of your fingers and, and hands. Um, and you also can't really get into the music either. You have to stay still because if you sway or, you know, swing your head left or right or anything like that, um, you're going to mess with the that, – that part of your body is going to come into the electromagnetic field and you're going to mess up the, the sound of the music. That's right. And that's why at hip-hop concerts, they say throw your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care except for mm-hmm. the thereminist. Right. Very big yeah, hip-hop Throw your instrument. hands in the air. And wave them like you just don't play Thayer. <laughs> I think we should just edit this part out. I very well may. No, I'll be very no, surprised no. if that ends up in the final cut, Chuck. Uh, one thing we didn't mention that seems obvious unless you uh, know about musical instrument or might seem obvious. I don't know what I'm saying. It's obvious to me. But it's going through an amplifier. Like if you're sitting at home like, yeah, but how does the sound come out? It's an electronic instrument, so it's plugged into an amp. It is, and actually that volume uh, circuit that you're interfering with, you're actually changing the voltage, I believe, of the amplifier. Um, that's how when you move your hand closer and further away, you're affecting the, the voltage that's that's released by that, that um, whatever transformer is, is supplying the amplifier with the electricity. Yeah, like you can get a theremin for not a lot of money or a theremin kit, or mm-hmm. uh, I would say get a uh, one of those new Thereminis that Moog is building yeah, because those are just super, super cool, and they sound amazing, and they make it a little bit easier on you. Yeah, because they, um, they, they recognize chords, right? So when you move your hand, like, through the air at a certain way, it, like, it, it goes through the, the, the chromatic scales. It's not, it's not just random stuff. It actually kind of is like a... Um, uh, very forgiving and corrective of what you're doing. It figures out what you're trying to do and then makes it sound like it, like you want it to. But the the, the most amazing thing is there's a dial where you can dial back that level of forgiveness. Yeah. As you get better and better at playing the theremin, you can just make it so that it's not doing that for you at all and you have to do it yourself, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, and it also sounds synthy and cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, I like the sound of a regular theremin, but that theremini, I had never heard of it until today, and I was like, I'm, I might have to get one of those at some point. <laughs> All right. It's pretty cool. I'll, if you're like a maker kind of person and you like music, there, you've probably already made theremins, but if not, check out a guy named Arthur Harrison's site, theremin.us. He sells kits and like has all sorts of um, articles and stuff like that. And then there's a guy named Ken Moore who hacked into, like, the Xbox Connect and the uh, Nintendo Wii and figured out how to turn them into theremins. And there's one where he, he does, like, a, a, you know, really admirable attempt at the Star Trek theme using his Wii theremin. Just look up Ken Moore Wii theremin Star Trek theme and thank me later. It's it's a cool community. Like, I love circuitry and electronic gadgetry uh, wonks. And those communities, sort of like the hams, like... They just really get into their shutting the door to their little room mm-hmm. and working on very small, very difficult to understand projects and hacking stuff and creating yeah. new things. It's just really, really in the in the spirit of creation and invention, I think, in which it was always intended. 
Nice. Yeah. I mean, the theremin is all that. And then some, Chuck. It's a whole bag of chips. <laughs> uh, you got anything else? Yeah. I sort of promised earlier a little bit of talk about theremin's legacy uh, with his kids mm-hmm. and grandkids. And he did have a daughter. He had a couple of daughters, but he had one named Natasha Theremin from his mm-hmm. third wife, who was a theremin master in Russia. And mm-hmm. then 29, she's 72 now. And then 29-year-old Peter Theremin, his great-grandson, oh. is also a Russian composer and a uh, theremin master. Pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah, um, that's neat also that they just adopted the uh, westernized version of their grandfather's name, too, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now you got anything else? Nothing else. Well, before we go, Chuck, um, because it's that time of year uh, and this episode's going to come out around Yumi's birthday, I want to take a second to say happy birthday to my dear sweet wife, Yumi. Happy birthday, Yums. Thanks. Happy birthday, Yumi. Uh, and since I said happy birthday, Yumi, and Chuck did too, that means it's time for Listener Mail. So this is a uh, this is a listener mail from Richard Roberts. And this was just supremely heartwarming. Uh, our book is out, uh, Stuff You Should Know, colon, An Incomplete Compendium of Mostly Interesting Things. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge thanks to everyone who uh, pre-bought it or bought it after its release in audiobook mm-hmm. or, or hardcover form. Um, but the Stuff You Should Know Army page has just been lit up with people posting pictures of them with the book, of them reading it, of their kids reading it, of their mm-hmm. dogs eating it already that's happened. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this comes from Richard Roberts uh, from the Stuff You Should Know Army. Hey, guys. Thanks for doing what you do. This podcast is wonderful. Just wanted to email you and let you know about a lovely gesture I just witnessed on the Stuff You Should Know Army Facebook page. Uh, one member posted to say they didn't buy the book due to their financial constraints at the time, but that they were so excited that it popped up in a search at their local library. Uh, and before you know it, in the comments, there was a fellow, uh, many fellow Stuff You Should Know Army fans scrambling to buy a book for this complete stranger. Uh, oh. So that she could have her own copy, uh, I think I took some screenshot or I took some screenshots which I attached. Uh, I know you don't always do shoutouts, but the philanthropic book buyers and the original poster might get a kick out of it if you did, and it's a nice story that people might enjoy. And that is Richard Roberts from Down Under, and uh, Jacko Dubois is who stepped up first and is buying mm-hmm. this book for this person and sending a book to this person. So That's awesome. Uh, Jacko, send us an email, and we'll send you something nice. Don't know what it is yet, but um, just send us an email, Jacko, and we want to uh, pay it forward right back to you. That's a lovely idea, Chuck. Very nice. And thanks, Jacko, and thank you. That was Richard that wrote in? That was Richard. Thank you, too, Richard. Uh, well, if you want to call out a very um, nice example of paying it forward or a random act of kindness or anything like that, we'd love hearing about that stuff. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.